Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. All right, John 1, 35 down through 51. And I'm reading out of the New King James Version. John writes, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, Peter, he said to him, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is God's word for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. We truly mean that. We want to declare that truth together. And in our hearts, as we say that, we are filled with gratitude to know that we have before us your revelation laying out for us who you are so clearly displayed in your son, Jesus. Some now 2,000 years later, time-tested, you are the same, Jesus, in every generation. You are the same today, yesterday, and forever. What we most need is to believe in you. So use this time, use me, God, in the teaching of your word to stir fresh faith to create new life in our hearts as we see you, Jesus, as the Son of God. Uh, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to use me, to fill me, to make up for the gaps in me, and uh, make this time meaningful as you speak to us. We invite you to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
All righty. Just a beautiful passage that we read there. Um, This morning, as we walk through this and unpack these verses, I want to preach simply uh, from this title. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down as the title of the message this morning. It's simply Finding and Following Jesus. Finding and Following Jesus. That's what we have here in the Gospel of John. We have the first ever finders and the first followers of Jesus. It's remarkable um, how we see Jesus in this passage. Uh, That's really what we're going for, too, in this study, is um, looking at Jesus. Tim Keller says it this way, that looking at Jesus and the the works of Jesus, it's like looking at a diamond. There's so many different faces and facets of the beauty. And that's what it's like with Jesus, and that's what we're doing in this series. We're looking at all the different facets of the diamond uh, that is Jesus. Uh, Last week, we focused especially on him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here in this passage, we get a much more down-to-earth, almost human Jesus. In this passage, he's not the Lamb of God, but he's the rabbi of disciples. A really interesting section here. We know this about Jesus, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for the whole world. Jesus came to pay the debt of sin that we owed because we could never pay it. Jesus didn't owe it, but he paid it. Thanks thanks be to God for that, right? That's what Jesus came to do. That was his mission, to go to the cross. But we see that Jesus had a certain method for how that message would get out into the world. Back then, there wasn't podcasts and radio and YouTube and Instagram. I'm sure Jesus would have leveraged those tools if they had been developed back then. No Mark Zuckerberg back then, just his you know, distant, I guess, cousins or something. But uh, Jesus back then, the way that he accomplished this mission was by investing it into a few ordinary dudes, his disciples, as a rabbi. A great book on this, I would highly recommend it, uh, that looks at the strategy of Jesus in evangelizing the world. Jesus was pretty effective in this mission, wasn't he? Like 2,000 years later, here we are in Boca reading about it. Um, It's a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Highly recommend it by Robert Coleman. And it basically chronicles the fact that Jesus, he very well could have done it all himself, right? Come to earth did the the work on the cross, and then just preached to crowds and masses. But the way of Jesus wasn't to gather large, large crowds in addition, but it was to invest into a few who would multiply that work. He would invest it into some disciples. And this is how any big movement starts, right? It always starts small. Google, Facebook itself, these large corporations. It started with a few people. Apple in a garage, Steve Wozni something, and the other guy, right? That's usually how these things start. This church, it's been awesome to watch how God has grown this church. It started with two or three people that just began to pray and say, God, what do you want to do? And so too, the Christian faith. The Christian faith. Today, the latest research estimates that there are some 2.2 billion Christians worldwide. 2.2 billion Christians. I just want to give you a lens to see that, that uh, I want to say that Christianity is still on the move today. Do we know that in 2020? Uh, Sometimes the mistake we make as American Christians is we have this lens that sees God's work in the world through like um, the priority of our nation. So a lot of times we can wrongly think that like America is at the epicenter of God's work in the world. And so if church, you know, uh, church attendance declines in America, which it has, 
we automatically assume that the Christian faith is just struggling. No, that's just the West. Like, yeah, it's true that Christianity is going through uh, all sorts of unique changes in our context. It's harder um, to find people that go to church in this generation as they did in the prior one. But all around the world, it's not the same. Uh, they say in China alone right now, there's an estimated 2,000 new Christians every hour. Africa is probably the greatest example of this. Um, in 1910, Africans made up 1.4% 1 1 of the global Christian population. Today they make up 23%. That's called, yeah, okay, we can clap for that. You want to know why we should clap? That's called revival. We're clapping for the work of God's spirit. We're clapping for the effectiveness of the mission of the kingdom. So regardless of, of the fruit, now, by the way, I, just, I sound like a Debbie Downer on America. I just want to say I'm praying for that kind of revival in America too. Anybody else? Like I'm hoping that God would use us as some small part of being a catalyst to see more people reintroduced to the Christian faith. That's kind of the hard part about our context right now. It's like uh, trying to convince some, somebody that something's good and they've already tried it before. It's like, try this food. It's like, no, I've already tried it. I'm good. And that's what it's like in a lot of ways with, the Christian, with our context, but uh, I believe it's, it's, it doesn't intimidate Jesus, and it's a great time to start a church, you know. Um, but, but just think about this. Uh, just globally, as we look at that number, 2.2 billion Christians, Christianity on the move. In, in uh, 100 years ago, it was 600 million. So just in 100 years, that number has uh, more than tripled to 2.2 billion. Now, that's a lot of Christians. And it all started with a couple dudes. And we get to see the account here. These disciples that Jesus would send out to expand this mission. Jesus was one of many rabbis in his culture. But he was unlike any other rabbi because he was not just a teacher that was going to tell you good things about the kingdom. He came with the solution. And so what I want to focus on in this text is uh, specifically what these first followers found in Jesus. Uh, these five guys. You hungry all of a sudden? Okay. These five guys that came to follow Jesus. There's two days worth of these five guys coming to follow Jesus. Uh, what's really interesting, I just want to point this out too, it's really cool to see how uh, the way that they all came to become a Christian, the way that they all came to follow Jesus as we read it, it was different for each one. Like the first sequence is interesting. Two of these guys, they come to follow Jesus through preaching. That's awesome. That's why I, I preach. That's why we preach. We preach the gospel because faith comes by hearing the gospel. How are they going to be saved unless they hear? So that's John the Baptist. That's the first one. John says to two of his disciples, behold the Lamb of God. John preaches to them. That's the Lamb of God, and they follow him. Uh, and that's one way, not the only way, but that's one way that people come to become Christians. I, I would just be curious, how many of you guys came to become a Christian because somebody you heard somebody preaching the gospel? I'm just curious. All right, awesome. Most of us, I would say, a lot of us. Now, there might be some overlap. Uh, the next example of people coming to Jesus was um, the example of Peter, who's the brother of Andrew, as well as Nathaniel, who's the friend of Philip. Both Peter and Nathaniel, as we read there, they came to Jesus through the invitation of a friend. It's an awesome way to come to Jesus. What a profound verse there. We even like, it just, it's like a quick verse, but it's verse 42. It's just one verse, and it says, and he brought him to Jesus. 
For every Peter, there's an Andrew, a faithful friend that found Jesus and then went to go find his brother because of what he found. You've got to come to know Jesus. How many of you guys would say that you were led to Jesus through a friend? Anybody? Awesome. That's a really cool thing. Now, the last one in this text that's a really unique one is Philip. It, what's really cool about Philip is that Jesus found Philip. I love that it says that. He literally walked, all it tells us is that he walks up to Philip and goes, you, follow me. And Philip's like, all right, I got nothing better to do. No, like he's, it's, really, it's literally like that. Uh, that's a, I, I think that's an awesome, really cool. I think there's a part of that in a lot of our stories as well. How many of you guys, you feel like Jesus came to you and saved you? Anybody actually have that kind of a story? Uh, that's kind of for me. Like I definitely had, had um, preachers in my life. Um, and it was the teaching of God's word. I definitely my parents preaching and leading me to Jesus. But I feel like that's a lot of how I came to, to follow Jesus. I found him, uh, I feel like, because he found me, right? I mean, we would all say that. But that's what's really cool. You know, there's not one way that someone comes to Jesus. And we get into trouble and we grow very ineffective as Christians when we pigeonhole conversion. This is how it should look. They get up, they come forward. They pray this prayer. They look like this. They act like this. No, no, no. Jesus works in all sorts of ways. Uh, and so that's just such a cool thing to, to see here. But uh, what I really want to focus on this morning with these first finders and followers of Jesus is not just how they found Jesus, but this is so important. I want us to look at this morning what they found in Jesus, why they decided to follow him. And I think this is an important thing for us to look at because we each go around here and we say, man, this is how I came to become a Christian. There's many occasions in my life where I am challenged to ask the question, why am I following Jesus? Like, why am I really doing this? And if we don't ask that question, we're in danger of just doing this religiously, Right? You ever been religious? You ever been like, yeah, I'm going to church, why? Because it's what I do on Sunday morning, now I'm not going to break the tradition. And that's sometimes good, I'm glad you're here, okay? <laughs> but it's important to ask this question, what have I found in Jesus? What, there, there's so many different people and directions that you could be following. And who you follow is important because it shapes who you are. It shapes what you believe, it shapes how you live. So what is it about Jesus? Why are you a Christian? Now, um, in this text, here's the, the question that I want us to, or, or thing I want us to focus on. It's a long sentence, so you don't have to write the whole thing down. But uh, I want us to look at what the first followers of Jesus found in him and what we will find when we follow him too. All right, let's look at that. What did the first followers of Jesus find in him and what will we find as we follow him too? And again, it, there's three scenes here that show us this. Uh, the first scene or, and is on the first day, and we saw it there with these first disciples, and they're disciples of John the Baptist. We've, we've uh, studied him in detail. We looked at that last week, looking at what made this guy so great. And one of the things that made him so great is what we just read in our text in verse 35. There's John. And John stands with two of his disciples, and, it, and, it's, and he says this. Uh, it says, John saw Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So we, we studied that in detail last week, which um, let me just 
make this first and foremost. This is, by the way, the entry step into following Jesus, right? First, Jesus is the one who saves us from our sin. He doesn't say, hey, do these things. I'm your rabbi. This will lead to a better life. No. Jesus is first presented as the Lamb of God who deals with our problem, which is sin. Jesus didn't come to make, it's been well said, right? Jesus didn't come to make bad people good people. He came to make dead people living people. He came to save sinners. And so that's the first thing that, that John the Baptist presents to these two disciples. But what's so awesome about John the Baptist is how he reacts when his two disciples stop following him and now start following Jesus. It shows that this guy was really not about building an empire for himself. He was about building the kingdom, a great model for ministry. It should never be about let's get more people to follow this man. It's how can we as men and women be vessels through which people follow Jesus? How do we get out of the way and keep it solus Christus, Jesus, at the center? And we see that in John, and that's a really cool thing to see in him. And so you have these first two disciples, and it tells us that these two disciples, verse 37, they began to follow Jesus. You see it there in verse 37? They began to follow him. And that's not spiritual at all. I just want to point it out. I know that the message is about they become followers of Jesus, but like they are literally, awkwardly following Jesus. Like following him. Like where's he going, right? They, they begin to explore. This is, uh, by the way, I, I think a great sequence to what the, the journey of faith um, looks like. You hear the good news of the gospel that God loves you. That starts first. And then you just start to go, well, what's God like? I want to I get to know him. I think that's so important. It doesn't start with, let me come to God and maybe he'll accept me. It just starts with, he's the lamb of God that takes away your sin. And then these two, they just go, I want to get to know him. So they start following after Jesus. And Jesus, it tells us, uh, he's not like a secret agent, but he can tell someone's following him, right? He's like, Hey guys, you know, they're like, hey, Jesus, you know, we just, we just so happen to be walking along the same 12 roads as you, right? Jesus turns to them, verse 38, and seeing them following, says to them, what do you seek? What are you after? What are you looking for? Um, this is, by the way, a question that Jesus will ask every one of his followers. What, what are you looking for? What do you want from me? Why are you here? Why are you at church? Why are you following me? What are you after? Jesus would never settle for just idle Christians. He, never, he, he would never just let it be this halfway thing. For Jesus, he knew that it was either all or nothing, right? Jesus is either, either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. What are you looking for? What do you want out of this? What do, what do you... What are you seeking? He asked them that question. Um, but this is more than just a question about why we're following Jesus. What a, by the way, can I mention this? This is the first recorded words of Jesus in his public uh, adult life that we have. Did you know that? We know him as a young child, as a boy, um, that unique encounter where his parents uh, lose the Son of God. Like, don't do that, all right? Keep, keep him around. But as an adult, this is the first words of Jesus. And could they be any more perfect? What are you looking for in life? What are you seeking? It's such a great question because in the Old Testament, the first question of God is, where are you hiding? Where are you hiding? That's what our first parents in the garden did, the first humans, they sinned. 
And then they ended up hiding. And now we move from hiding to seeking. Jesus comes and he says, what are you actually after? What are you seeking? What are you searching for? Um, Now, this is going to be the first thing that we see these disciples find in Jesus. Write this down. In these verses, we see these disciples following Jesus into joyful satisfaction. It's the first thing that they discover in him. Joyful satisfaction. These disciples, like us, were longing and looking for some sense of fulfillment. What are you seeking? We all are. Maybe you ask yourself that question this morning. What what am I seeking? What am I after? Peace? Forgiveness? um, Redemption? Maybe you're looking to be rid of your shame. What are you seeking? At the end of the day, it's rooted in this sense of just having the joy of being fulfilled in whatever that desire is. And as Jesus asked these disciples about what, it is, what is it that you're after, their response gives us insight as to what they were finding in Jesus. They said to Jesus, as he, after he asked this question, they said, where are you staying? That's what they asked him. What do you seek? What are you after? And notice they didn't go, well, Jesus, I was just hoping that maybe you can make us rich. That's going to be a really popular thing in, in 2020. The prosperity gospel is really going to blow up. And I'm not sure if you're going to be into that or not, but I just want to try it out. What do you think about that? Is that going to be you? No? Okay. Or Jesus, I was just hoping that you could make me a better person. I just, could you do that? Can you like wave a wand or something and just, that's what I'm seeking. I'm coming to you. Or Jesus, I have this really big philosophical question that nobody's been able to answer. And so can you fulfill me intellectually and just give me, now there's something insightful about these disciples. When Jesus asked them, what are you looking for? Their response says something along the lines of, Whatever it is, I have this sense, Jesus, that we're going to find it with you, by being with you. We're going to find it in you. Whatever it is we're after, I'm not coming to you, Jesus, to to get an answer. I mean, they could have said, well, here's my question. He said, okay, go on your way. But they said, no, where are you staying? Because, Jesus, you're not the means to some greater satisfaction and joy. But it's like you are in and of yourself the satisfaction and the joy I'm looking for. Where are you staying? I want to be with you. Because maybe it's in you that I'll find what I'm looking for. Not a means to something else. They ask that great question, where are you staying? And it's important to see it as that's the cry of their heart. You know, they're not asking like, hey, where, where are you staying? You know, Airbnb, the Jerusalem Inn. Where are you at, right? Where are you staying? No, they're saying we want to come be with you. And look at the invitation of Jesus. He says, come and See, this is what called me to follow Jesus. Jesus' invitation to come find what I'm looking for in him. I was raised in the church my whole life, taught all the different things about God, every book of the Bible, you know, where Jesus is in those books. And, and I knew the difference between Noah and Moses, which was a big feat for me growing up in the church. That can be a hard one. And and I had enough Bible knowledge to, to, to have just enough of Jesus to know about him, but not actually find fulfillment in him. Or, or not actually trust him to save me, but know the information. There's a big difference, isn't there? Knowing the information that God satisfies and that, and that God, uh, he saves and that God fulfills our lives and that Jesus is the embodiment of that. And, and you know, I grew up hearing, you know, to have Jesus and nothing else is to have everything. But my salvation, my true satisfaction came when I sensed God say to me, 
Come and see. Come close. I've paid for your sin so that you can. Come find fulfillment in me. Come know me. My life verse is Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, you'll never taste, or you'll never rather see unless you taste. You'll never see unless you come. Unless you come. A lot of us, what we do is Jesus says, hey, come and see. I'll fulfill you. No, no, I want to see, and then I'll come. I want you to do this. Here's my list, Jesus. Okay, I know you promised to satisfy me, but can you deal with all of these problems, and then I'll let you be the satisfaction, the joyful satisfaction of my heart. And the response and the invitation is, it's the other way around. No, you come first. Trust, that's trusting Jesus. You come to him. And can I promise you something? You will see. You really will. As long as I keep coming to Jesus, I'm still seeing. My problem with seeing is often because I'm not coming to him. I think that's what's so insightful about these disciples. It says that they, they did come. It tells us this. They came to him. And, and it tells us that they stayed with him. I think that's really important. They stayed with him. They saw where he was staying. This is verse 39. And they remained with him that day. Um, and it's inter- interesting. It even tells us that it was about the 10th hour. So uh, most people would submit. Um, there's six disciples, list, or five disciples listed here. Only four of them are named. Who could be the fifth one that's not naming himself in the Gospel of John that's giving specific detail about what time it was? Could it be John? It is. It's, it's most likely that it's John himself. So likely John and Andrew, they come, and I love this, they stay with Jesus. That's just so important. They don't just go through Jesus. This is the constant fight of the Christian life. Let me not see Jesus as a means to something greater, but let me find him as the greatest thing. And remaining in him and knowing him and walking with him as the greatest source of joyful satisfaction. Like if if today we find ourselves not joyful and not satisfied in Jesus, it could be that we're not remaining in Jesus like these disciples. That's Jesus' vision for us. He tells us in the Gospel of John about remaining in him and and just fruit in our lives that come from that. He tells us this in John 15, uh, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that it would be full. Maybe right now you can think back at a time on your life where that joy was full. Where, where joyful satisfaction, that was your testimony. That was your song, man. You, you had, and you, you have tried everything else, by the way. Even the stuff you've gone back to that you're tired of, you know that doesn't do it. You already have a testimony of knowing that satisfaction only comes in a close proximity relationship with Jesus. You know it. What's the problem then? You've wandered. You've gone through Jesus. You've got to come back to Jesus. You've got to be like, I've got to be like these disciples who remained. They stayed with him because Jesus is the greatest treasure. Can I just give us a closing verse on this point? It's Psalm Uh, 73 verse 25. I love this psalm. This is something I've got to pray. The more I pray it, I think the more I'm believing it. But uh, this is what Psalm 73 says, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. To have you, Jesus. Whom have I 
but you. And when you find Jesus, you'll say, there's nothing I really desire besides Jesus. Because he's the source of everything else that's good. And you see this as a theme in, 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 in history, still today. This is what it looks like to become a Christian. You taste and see how awesome Jesus is, and it's a no-brainer that you'll give everything up for him. Because nothing else compares. And let me say, you give up everything. You don't just give up Sunday morning and like new ethics. And I'm going to be better. I'm going to treat my neighbor a little nicer. No, you give your whole life to Jesus. There's no other response after tasting of him, after coming to him and seeing him. Jesus tells a parable about this in Matthew 13. I said I had one more verse. I lied. Um, Lord, forgive me. Okay, Matthew 13, 44. Jesus told this great parable about what it's like to encounter the kingdom of God in Jesus. And it's, it's a, it's a, a, a one-sentence parable. We have a, a group of guys in the church. We have a text group um, that we text every day. We text like Bible verses and what God is speaking to us through the word. And the other day, I think it was Dimitri sent this, this verse out and uh, just been kind of meditating on it this week. Jesus said it this way. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found... And he hid. And for the joy over it, he goes, he sells all that he has, and he buys the field that the treasure's in. He doesn't tell anybody, he's like, I'm going to buy that field. Why? I just, I like the field. It's a good field. Great for field games and field days and Jerusalem sports. Um, There was a pearl of great price. There was a treasure that that this man found. Now, it's cool because you can actually look at this verse both ways. In one way, you can see that this is how Jesus sees us, which is awesome. That Jesus saw our lives and he paid it all to have us. Isn't that awesome? You're struggling with your worth and your value? Look at Jesus. He he didn't purchase your life, Peter says, with silver and gold, but with his precious blood. No, No higher value than that. No higher currency than that. But there's also this reciprocal kingdom of God effect that says, man, and when I discovered Jesus... Paul writes, he says, Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What is the rubbish in your life right now that's keeping you from finding joyful satisfaction in Jesus? In his presence and his presence alone is fullness of joy. Amen? That's the first thing. Is that not what leads us to follow Jesus, by the way? Just going, there's, I mean, this is why I'm a Christian. I mean, this is it. Like, I haven't found anything better. I'm just being honest, right? Full joy forever. If you got something else, we'll talk after, okay? It's like a new religion that's got better than that. We'll talk, okay? But for now, I'm sold, okay? Jesus has convinced me that there's nothing that compares to this love that he satisfies us with. Uh, the second thing that we see is in the next sequence, and it's this, the famous sequence of Andrew and Peter. It's the second sequence. The first, we see these disciples, they follow Jesus into joyful satisfaction. But, but look at this next one here. The next one that we see is in verse 40. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, stay with me here, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother. Friends lead friends to Jesus, okay? A good brother leads a brother to Jesus. This is the passion of my life. Found his brother, brought him to Jesus. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah. Hey, Peter, I I found something pretty awesome. What'd you stumble across? The Messiah. The Christ. 
the promised Redeemer, the Anointed One, Jesus of Nazareth. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, this is amazing. Here's this Galilean fisherman, probably buff, tough, the oldest of the disciples. We don't know if Jesus has some knowledge of Peter up to this point, but here's Peter walking towards Jesus now. His brother's bringing him to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, You are Simon. Simon's like, yeah. You shall be called Cephas. Simon's like, what? (laughs) This is your name, but this is who you're going to be named. This, This is who you're going to become. Simon, that's Peter's given name there. Cephas, the name that Jesus says he's going to be named as, Cephas, it's an Aramaic word. It says it there that's translated a stone. Jesus is prophesying over Peter, speaking what is even though it's not, uh, seeing what's, what, what, uh, having a vision of what can't be seen. He's saying, you are Simon, but you shall be Cephas. In other words, this is who you are but this is who I'm going to make you. This is who you're going to become. You could write the second thing down. This is what we found in Jesus. We found faithful transformation. Faithful transformation. Faithful. Faithful. Now, this is what we follow Jesus into. This is the invitation. And this is, man, this is why I'm, again, this is why I'm still following Jesus. Just like Peter. Isn't it awesome? Jesus doesn't just see us for who we are. He does. He sees all. The Bible says nothing's hidden from his sight. But he doesn't just see us for who we are. Jesus, understand this today. Wherever you're at with Jesus, he knows where you are. He knows where I am. But he sees beyond who you are to who he's making you. Always. He doesn't just see you for your weaknesses. And he doesn't just see you for the height of your strengths. He sees sees you for who he's making you is stronger. He sees you for, for, here's Peter, you are Simon, I love this, he, he speaks this over Peter, that's who you are, but you're going to have a rock-solid character. That's what he tells him. Now, I wonder if, as Jesus is speaking this over Peter, I wonder if at some point Jesus saw Peter like out on his boat using Hebrew cuss words or something. I don't know them. I would say one, maybe just to practice, but, um, you know, gefilte fish or something. I don't know, Okay. I'm, I'm going to stop. Um, but, you know, you imagine, like, um, how many of you guys ha- have weak points at work that you're glad no one sees? <laughs> how many of you guys uh, breathe oxygen? <laughs> a couple of you? A couple of you. Good. Okay. <laughs> so it's like you wonder if Jesus saw Peter, like, take up a couple empty nets. And he's, oh, you know, he's like, uh, and this is Peter. He, I, I really resonate with Peter because Peter gets really high off the highs and really low off the lows. And so Peter, you know, it could be that, that maybe he's, he's Peter bringing a big net. Oh my gosh, look at all these fish I've caught. And Peter's just elated. And he's hugging everybody, you know. He's the oldest one. And then he brings in an empty net and Peter's yelling at everybody. What's your problem, you know? You didn't see that thing coming, the fish, the minnow, whatever it is, you know. Like, and so Jesus, I love this. It's like Jesus, Jesus knows him. He knows us as well. Can I say that? No one knows you like Jesus. It's why you don't have to hide from him. Because you can't. He knows you. But there's no one like Jesus who knows you beyond who you are today. 
This is what's hard about being in community, right? Because we're constantly coming into contact with who we really are if we allow community to produce what it's supposed to. If we don't just slide into church and slide out and put on a church smile face. Like if we're really going to be the church, we're going to get to know each other. The good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly. And this is what can be tough, is constantly coming into contact with who we, we really are. But you know what we need to have in church? A spirit of, of faithful transformation. A spirit that believes that God does more than take us as we are, but he changes us. He really does. I'm only on a stage preaching the gospel this morning to you because there were men of God of grace and mercy in my life that saw beyond who I was. Some of you are still at this church today because you're seeing beyond who I am. Like, those are long sermons. I, I, you are uh, one hour long, but you shall be maybe 45 minutes one day, Andrew, you know? But it's having a heart and eyes to see our transformation, seeing who God is making us. And can I tell you something? If, if there's anyone that can encourage us to the fact that Jesus is faithful to transform us and change us, it's Peter. Like, lest you be discouraged and like, oh yeah, well, St. Peter, you've you got to read the Bible you got to get to know Pete, man, <laughs> okay? Um, Peter shows us that transformation is simply a product of God's spirit and grace. Like, we don't change ourselves. Peter, if it was up to Peter to change himself, like, the story would have ended with him. But because of Jesus' faithfulness, and that's what's so cool about Jesus. You notice this, this is a really important word. You are Simon, but you shall be. That's so important. Not you might be. But no, okay. it's like you don't have a say in the matter. I'm changing you. I'm ch I know you don't see it. I know you don't see it, but it's a promise. I'm faithful. I'm faithful. Now, now Peter, I'm sure, at times doubted this prophecy over his life, like us. Right now, maybe you're going, I feel like I can't change. Maybe you feel like stuck in that. Like, I don't, I'm, I've been in the same ways over and over again, and Maybe you think right now the problem is that you are erring and you're failing too much. Or, or the problem is you just can't get a break in life. And so it's like you, you feel maybe right now like, man, I, I want to be changed. I want, the, I want the spirit of God to transform me, make me more like Jesus. But I've just got too many trials and I've got too many errors. And uh, not only did Peter have the same things, but can I say this? Trials and errors were the very thing that Jesus used in Peter's life to change him. Okay, trials and errors are not the problem. Uh, they're actually a part of the process. The problem is not that you're failing. The problem is your heart when you fail. The problem is not what you're going through. It's how are you responding to what you're going through. You see Peter as this guy who's definitely, you read the whole account, he's not, he doesn't become a rock overnight. He walks into all sorts of hardships. He ends up being crucified upside down as a martyr. He writes in, his, in one of his letters that trials are a part of God's process to transform us. And errors? Does anybody know? Is it, you think anybody in the Bible knows about error like Peter? I wonder what Peter was feeling about this prophecy when he heard that third rooster after denying Jesus. He probably wasn't feeling very rock steady. And maybe right now you feel the same way. You're, you're kind of discouraged. What is it that you need? What is it that I need? I think what we need is a reminder that God is faithful. Faithful to do what? Well, Paul says it this way. He says that we should be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us 
he's going to complete it. He's going to do it. Jesus never starts something that he doesn't finish. We're, we're all a work in progress. The question isn't, are you going through trials and errors? Are you falling short? The question is, how are you holding those trials and errors? Are you trying to control them yourself? Or there's something that happens when you just take all of your failings and all of your trials and you just lay them at the feet of Jesus. And you say, okay, Lord, these, aren't, these are yours. You've, you're sovereign over my life. I'm bringing you all of it. I'm laying it at your feet. I'm inviting you to do what only you can do through this. Amen? Faithful transformation. Faithful transformation. Uh, closing verse for this one. Uh, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. This is such great hope. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is so important. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is something God promises to do. Th this is not a point that says, now go be better. This is a point that says, continue to walk with Jesus. Watch him get the glory for changing you. Watch him transform you. Peter goes on to become and be the rock that Jesus prophesied. Not perfect, but steady. Who got the glory for that? Peter? No, Jesus did. Jesus did. And lastly, let's look at this last disciple, this last sequence. It happens on the next day. First, we see that these disciples followed Jesus. Why did they follow him? They found joyful satisfaction in him that nothing else could give. They found the promise of faithful transformation, that God was going to take who we were and make us into something different for his glory. And then here we have this third one, and you could write this last one down. The last one we see is we see some disciples following Jesus into hopeful, hopeful expectation. Hopeful expectation. That's verses 43 down to 51. It's two guys, two friends a guy named Philip and a guy named Nathaniel. Here's what we see in this last sequence. It says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. That's his testimony. How'd you get saved? Jesus told me to follow him and I did. Verse 44. <laughs> That's his story. That's all we know. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, fishing town, likely all fishing compadres here, the city of Andrew and Peter. And I love this. Philip then found Nathaniel. A great example found people find people because of what they found. It's too good not to share, right? So here's Philip. He goes, I got to go find Nathaniel. And we meet an interesting character in Nathaniel. I like this guy. Look at this guy, Nathaniel. Philip tells Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses and the law and all the, also the prophets wrote. So they were under, under the understanding, this is not just any other rabbi or teacher. This is the promised Messiah the one, the prophet that Moses wrote about, the, the suffering service that Isaiah wrote about. And it is Jesus of Nazareth, local podunk town, the son of Joseph. So he's a guy. This is what's amazing about Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of God. He's also the son of man. So, so Jesus coming into the world, the message translation says that God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. It's like, it's like, yo, we found the Messiah. What? He's, it's uh, Jesus of, of, uh, of Pompano. Um, yeah, yeah, Bill's son. Yeah. I mean, that's what he's saying. The Messiah. I'm not trying to say that nothing good about Pompano, Pompton. It's my hood. I love it. I love, we spend time there. We have friends and family there. They got an okay community group. Russ's group is all right. Okay. But, but, but Nathaniel hears, we found the Messiah. And, and in that culture, you know what they're expecting? They're expecting some high, holy, royal, political figure. 
who's, who's already gained some notoriety since a young age, and, and just as the kingdom of God always does, often out of sight and in obscurity where God grooms all of us, here's this Messiah from Nazareth? I, I mean, do you, have, do you have a business card? Like, Messiah-elect? Like, what? Who is he running? Like, what? Where's he teaching? No, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And, and here's, we get great insight into Nathaniel. Um, remember, Jesus goes on to see Nathaniel and he tells him, Behold an Israelite, we just read it there, in whom is no deceit. That's what, he, that's what Jesus has to say about this guy, Nathaniel. Uh, and that word deceit is, it's a fishing term, actually. And it, it could also be translated guile or bait. So uh, Jesus is like speaking the language of the day and he's like, Oh, Nathaniel. You're a guy with no bait. There's no trickery in you. How many of us know people like this? What you see is what you get. There's nothing subtle or hidden. They're never going to have something secret. up. There's no secret agenda. They don't know how to have a secret agenda. It's like it's a public agenda, okay? Like, it's, can you please make it secret sometimes, all right? Like, and here's Nathaniel. He's just brutally honest. So, so here's um, Philip. He goes, we found the Messiah. Now, and, and here's Nathaniel. He goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, come on, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There could be, it seems like, some subtle prejudice here, but there's actually something happening deeper below the surface. Uh, We get some insight into Nathaniel's heart. This seems to be then a theme that Jesus runs with. I don't know if, if Nathaniel's lack of expectation of Jesus coming out of Nazareth had to do with so much so the place, as much as it had to do with the level of Nathan's expectation for some things. Like, so here's literally what he says. Can something good, I don't expect anything good to come out of that bad place. You you could say it this way, that uh, Nathaniel, he had um, two things specifically. Number one was no expectation for good things, and he had a very low expectation for great things. Uh, And this is, by the way, this can happen if you don't have a relationship with God and you walk through life which is hard, and really bad, unexpected, hard things happen that you can't explain, and you, you try to connect the dots. Well, how could I have prevented this? You, you can't do the science. You can only do the theology to go, it's a fallen world. And, and here's Nathaniel. And it could be that with him, there's just low expectation in his heart for, for not just anything great, but he doesn't expect anything good. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, how's this for good? How about God himself? He's pretty good, right? That's a pretty good thing coming out of Nazareth. How about Jesus, the only one who is good? That's pretty good. In fact, when you find Jesus, what you're going to find is not just someone who is good coming out of maybe a culturally bad place in Nazareth, but you find someone who represents power to bring good things out of every bad situation. This is Jesus. This is who you're finding. This is what Jesus seems to do in his heart, raise his heart, raise his expectation. Uh, We know that this is something that um, we also can experience with Jesus. Isn't this a great promise that we know that all things work together for the good? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Maybe you said that in your own life. Maybe you, like Nathaniel, you're just really a straight shooter with the Lord and you go, this has been so bad, I can't imagine anything good. How could something good come out of this? And here's what we know. We know that with God, his power is greater than anything bad. And his wisdom and his sovereignty, only God can make the best out of the worst. 
Only God. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything that you've done, God's like, oh, I want, I want cruelty in their life so I can bring something good. That could be a dangerous theology that, that, that detaches God's care and concern and compassion for what we're going through. We can't do that. What this promise reminds us is that there is, there's just nothing that he won't use. There's just nothing. Nothing's going to be wasted if you surrender it to him. Nothing that you've gone through, and maybe right now that's what you're missing out on. You've gone through some stuff, but that thing you've gone through, God wants to take that tragedy and turn it into a triumph. He wants to use that in your life. There's other people in your life that are suffering through the same stuff. If you'd allow your misery to become a ministry, it'd be awesome to see what God would do. And so that's the first thing that we see with Nathaniel. But we also see, as we mentioned, we see him having low expectation for great things. He has no expectation for good things to come out of bad situations. But we see Jesus raising his hopeful expectation, embodying good out of bad. But then this is so cool. Jesus tells him, Jesus speaks to him, and he says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He tells him that. So here's Jesus, the good one, speaking to him, uh, talking about his character as being straightforward. And Nathanael goes, Well, how do you know me? And Jesus says, Um, I saw you, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, this is interesting. Um, There's cultural, I think literally, we take what's written in the Word of God, and with context, we go, okay, like, I don't think there's some big hidden message here. I think Jesus literally saw this guy sitting under a tree. All right? They didn't have, like, cabanas back then. Maybe they did. I don't know. But you know what I'm saying, right? He's getting some shade. But the term sitting under the fig tree was also a cultural term to say that somebody was reading the Bible. Fig, uh, the fig tree is often used as a picture of Israel in the scriptures. So, so it could be that Jesus had double meaning. Here's Nathaniel, and he's sitting under the fig tree, sitting under the fig tree, reading, could be under a tree, reading the word of God, reading about God's work in Israel. And Jesus sees him. He sees this man that he knows And here's where Jesus really transforms his life. This is so amazing. This statement of Jesus seeing him, it makes him go, verse 49, you are the son of God. Like, just being known by Jesus changed him, which is so cool. And Jesus goes, okay. So he goes from, like, no expectation and low expectation to go, whoa. All of a sudden, it starts to get excitement. Hope starts to well up in his heart. A guy who's kind of a Debbie Downer, very pessimistic, starts to get a little optimism in his heart, a little confidence, a little expectation starts to well up. And Jesus goes, really? This is what got you excited? He says this, you ain't seen nothing yet. Me knowing you? I mean, that's cool to get you excited, but that's the tip of the iceberg, Nathaniel. See, Nathaniel had low expectation. He had no expectation. And Jesus tells him, greater things than these you will see. Jesus has to tell us that a lot, doesn't he? Hey, listen, I know your expectation's low, and I know you tend to feel like your your best days are behind you, but what if we had that kind of spirit? Man, I'm praying that as a church. I'm praying that greater days are ahead of us. I'm praying for more salvations. I'm praying for more healing to happen in our community. Do we believe that Jesus really brings us from glory to glory? Do we believe that following Jesus is just a good day that gets better forever? It is. For the non-believer, this is the best it's ever going to get. For the Christian, this is the worst it's ever been. But the, the, the best is really yet to come. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. 
If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.